I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25 as we continue our study in the book of Acts, beginning at verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. And so he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. And Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, of, uh, the king and Bernice, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, here I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evil as I suppose. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I can send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. 
but I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, through your Word, would speak to us, and that you would do that work in us, making us more like your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would mold and shape us as we all sit under the authority of your Word this morning. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In Psalm 27, David cries out in desperation to God. He says, give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. They breathe out violence. As we encounter the Apostle Paul in the text uh, before us, we see a brother who is trapped on all sides by false witnesses. He is surrounded by religious and political forces who appear to be married in their commitment to destroy him, even if their reasons for doing so are different. For the Jews, Paul is a traitor who has abandoned the true faith and has led others astray. He is in their minds a heretic who must be stopped at all costs if their way of life is to be saved. Paul is a threat to their way of life, a threat that must be eradicated. I wonder if we recognize anything like that in our own day. I wonder if we've seen people so committed to their own way of life that they are willing to get rid of anyone who threatens that way of life. And oh, by the way, all this takes place two years after the initial plot to kill Paul, which means that the religious ruler's hatred and anger against him had not abated in all that time. On the other hand, Paul is a pawn. He's a chess piece that the political forces are happy to use to further their own political life. He is a dispensable commodity to be used for the gain of the state, even if it means his death. Paul is a citizen who is finding out just how little that citizenship is worth when measured against the ambition of political leaders. You say, Pastor, where do you see that? Well, just look at verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? In other words, Festus didn't actually really care about the case or about Paul's guilt or innocence. He only cared about how Paul could be used to position himself relationally with the Jewish leadership. And since Jerusalem had been the very place from which Paul had to be rescued previously, 
Festus had to know that sending him there would be at the risk of Paul's death. And so here's my question for us this morning. What do you do as a believer when the forces of the world seem arrayed against you? Indeed, what do, you, what do we do corporately as believers when the forces of the world appear arrayed against us for bearing witness about Jesus in this world? What do we do when we are between rocks and hard places? Some of you may be saying, I'll never be in the situation that Paul was in, so I don't have to worry about these forces being arrayed against me. Well, Luke isn't telling Paul's story to entertain us. He isn't telling it to us to elevate Paul's reputation. He is telling it to us because it is a story that illustrates what happens when God's people stand for Jesus in this world. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this to the church in Corinth in his first letter to them. He says this, for it seems to me that God has placed us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. We are cursed. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have become your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, watch this, imitate me. <laughs> imitate you. And if we're honest, here's what we want to say. Wh- which part, Paul? Because I'm not filling the whole scum of the earth, garbage of the world part. I mean, I'll, I'll imitate you, but the, but the scum of the earth thing, the, the, the garbage of the world doesn't seem like something I really want to embrace. Some of the other stuff in there may be. You see, we want to follow Christ. We want to follow Jesus. We want to bear witness for Him in the world. But here's the question. Are we ready for scum status? Are we ready for scum status? Are we ready for garbage of the world status? Are we ready to be thought of as Paul was thought of, both by his accusers and his judges, a dispensable commodity? And the central question for us this morning is this, how do we stand for Jesus in that space? How do we we stand for Christ? when we are in that space of being considered by the world as garbage? How do we stand for Jesus when the world converges upon us, when false witnesses rise up against us, when our citizenship is shown to be worth little in the eyes of the world? 
how did my Christian ancestors do it? Both my ancestors in the Bible and my ancestors according to the flesh doing slavery and Jim Crow into this present moment. The answer is simple, even if the experience of it is not easy. They trusted in the Lord. They trusted in God. They trusted in His sovereign rule over their lives and over the history of the world. And in that trust, they committed their own destiny as well as the destiny of the world into the hands of God, knowing that as they continued to bear witness for Him, He would bring what He promised to pass. Paul, Paul was trusting in the Lord. He was trusting in Jesus' word to him, not only of where the world was headed, but where his own life was headed. Paul knew that he would testify about Jesus in Rome, and all his actions were rooted in his trust in the Lord's word to him. And that's, brothers and sisters, that's how we stand when the forces of the world are converging against us. We trust in the Lord. We trust in the Lord. So, what does that trust then enable us to do? In fact, what does it look like to stand for Jesus rooted in that trust? What does it look like to stand for Jesus rooted in that trust? Well, I want to start by saying as we stand in that trust, as we trust in the Lord, it binds us to a commitment to pressing the truth, a commitment to pressing the truth, even, even among the powerful of this world. Our Lord, our Lord Jesus knew that bearing testimony about Him in this world would bring us into conversation, into dialogue, into conflict even with the rulers and authorities and powers of this world. Jesus told His disciples in Mark chapter 13, verse 9, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. In fact, I want to say this this morning, the history of God's people, if we read the biblical narrative from start to finish, is one where they were constantly being brought into conversation, dialogue, and even conflict with the world's rulers as they bore witness about the Lord in the world. From Abraham with Abimelech and Pharaoh, to Moses with Pharaoh, to the three Hebrew boys with Nebuchadnezzar, to Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors, to Esther with Xerxes and his advisors, to John the Baptist with Herod, and everyone in between, God's people have consistently had to bear witness for God and His truth before the rulers and authorities of this world. It is quite normal, in fact, a normal part of bearing testimony to the truth about Jesus in this world. Now, it's true that when we find ourselves in that place, our speech must not be violent or divisive or destructive or the like. But if we are bound, we are bound, we are bound, we are bound. If we're going to bear witness to Jesus, to speak truth, and at times that means speaking truth to powerful people and powerful entities. It means speaking truth 
to those from a human standpoint that have our lives in their hands. Paul found himself in that very spot. He was standing before Festus, who clearly from the text was looking for a way to help the Jews in their charges against Paul, which is clearly indicated in verse 9, which I just read to you. And Paul, perceiving what was going on, perceiving that Festus was in league with the Jews, says this. He says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong. As you yourself know very well, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. What Paul is doing here, brothers and sisters, is that he is, as he speaks to Festus, what he's doing here is no small thing. He is confronting Festus with the clear injustice of what is taking place. And his words are aimed both at his own countrymen and at Festus himself. The religious rulers have no credible charge against Paul. The text told us they brought charges, but they couldn't prove them. So they have no credible charges against Paul. They have failed to prove their claims against him, that he did anything deserving of death, which Festus himself is actually going to acknowledge to Agrippa. What is more, their supposed intentions to try Paul in Jerusalem are false, as Luke uncovers for us in the narrative. The supposed trial in Jerusalem was really a plot to ambush Paul on the way and kill him. It is a plot, by the way, that is being orchestrated now by the religious rulers themselves. Isn't it interesting that men so zealous for the law have no problem violating it when it furthers their own ends? And so Paul, knowing that this was their intention, protests being handed over to them. And in so doing, he challenges Festus with his own injustice. Paul tells Festus that he knows very well that Paul had done nothing wrong to the Jews. Festus then has no right to hand Paul over to them, knowing that Paul has not done anything wrong. And yet Festus was ready to do this very thing. And so Paul appeals to Caesar. Having failed in the lower courts, Paul now appeals to the highest court in the land at that time. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to see in all of this is this, that Paul is standing in a long line of witnesses. He is standing in a long line of God's witnesses committed to speaking truth in the fog of lies. He is standing in a long line of witnesses, not afraid to confront people no matter how powerful with what is right. He is standing in a long line of witnesses who choose to worship the Lord rather than worshiping their own lives. He is standing in a long line of witnesses who choose a faithful citizenship in this world over an unfaithful one, a citizenship that presses for God's goodness over all rather than over a few. Paul, in that long line of witnesses for God's truth in this world, a truth to be spoken even to the powerful, Paul is standing in that long line of witnesses. And here's my question this morning, what about us? 
What about us? Are we willing to stand in that long line of witnesses who are willing to stand for what is right, for what is true, for what is good, even if it means standing in front of the powerful of the world and speaking it? Are we willing to stand in that long line of witnesses and testify to the truth of God? Now, here's the thing. The call here isn't to go looking for someone powerful to tell the truth to. It isn't to go looking for a fight, so to speak. Paul was in this position of speaking to Festus, not because he went looking for Festus, not because he went looking for trouble. He was standing before Festus because of his commitment to testify about Jesus. And in Paul's case, It was specifically his reputation of testifying to this truth among the Gentiles, a group that Paul calls strangers and foreigners to the covenants of God in Ephesians 2. Those once on the outside were now being invited in by God. In other words, it was, it, was, it was who Paul was testifying to Jesus about that got him dragged in front of Festus. It was his commitment to walking day-to-day among outsiders, telling them about Jesus that got him dragged before the powerful of the earth. All I'm saying is this, that our call isn't to go looking for powerful people to speak to, standing among the powerless, the outsiders, the weak, the poor, the abused, the mistreated, and engaging in the day-to-day work of proclaiming the kingdom of God among them will bring us into conversation, dialogue, and even conflict with the powerful of the earth. You know why? It's because the groups of people I just mentioned are often caught in a world, in a web, really, caught in a web of harmful beliefs, decisions, customs, practices, policies, that are made by those in positions of power over them. Yes, the groups I mentioned are sinners. Yes, they commit sins that create harm to themselves and others. Yet the Scriptures are also clear that the categories of people I just mentioned are often crushed on the decision of the powerful of this world, and our day-to-day commitment to stand among them to proclaim Christ will of its own accord bring us into conversations, dialogues, and even conflict with the powerful, where we will be called to speak God's truth. We don't have to go looking for trouble. The testimony of Scripture is that in the course of our normal testimony about God, a testimony that calls us to outsiders, to the poor, the needy, and the like, trouble will find you. And the question will be, when that trouble finds you, will you be willing to stand and proclaim the truth of God, even in the face of the powerful of the earth? Will you be willing to stand in that long line of witnesses that protest the evil and injustice and unrighteousness that's going on around you and proclaim the truth of God in the midst of it? Amen, people of God. (laughs) To trust in the Lord when the powers of the world are converging among us calls us to be a people who stand in that long line of witnesses that press the truth even in front of the most powerful of the world. 
But it also means this on the other hand. It means that we are called to resist the temptation toward the world's way of power. That we are called to resist the temptation toward the world's way of power. That's what it means to trust in the Lord. Pay close attention to verses 23. Pay, pay close attention to verse 23. It says, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Now, why does Luke paint this scene for us? Why does, why, why does he show us this scene of Agrippa and Bernice in all of their pomp and circumstance coming into uh, the tribunal with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then Paul is brought before them in chains. You have Agrippa with all his pomp and circumstance and Paul in chains. Why does Luke paint this scene for us? It's because the world's display of power often looks like the one in front of us. And whether we want to admit it or not, that display is attractive to us. Whether we want to admit it or not, we, we love the pomp and circumstance of Agrippa. We love the, the, the great military show of power. We love to look like we are strong. We love to look like we have all kinds of authority and power. The idea of being in chains is not appealing to us. Agrippa and Bernice are two people who are fully vested in Rome's way of exercising power. They are Jews, but they are fully Roman in the way they view power. They don't call for a private meeting with Paul as Felix and Drusilla had. No, they arrive with all the pomp, all the circumstance that fit their station in the world. They arrive with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And this is a show of force that is way out of proportion to what the occasion actually calls for. After all, standing before them is one man, not a band of men, not a conquered rebellion, but one man. It is as if they want to make a statement to Paul and everyone else who would challenge Rome, don't mess with us. Don't mess with us. We are Rome, and we will crush you. And as Luke paints the scene… In these verses, one cannot help but think back to Jesus' words when he was arrested in Mark 14. He spoke these words, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. It is as if Jesus were saying, really? All this show of force for one man? A man who has not shown himself to be violent, been with you every day in the temple doing good? And here is Paul, now standing before an equally disproportionate show of force, bound in chains. And it is as if Luke were presenting us with the same picture, 
showing us, if you will, those same two divergent paths of power, the power that uses, it, it uses its might to put others in their supposed place, and the power that uses its strength to bear witness to the good. And in the face of this, one cannot help but ask the question this morning, who are we? Who are we? Who are we in the church? Who are we? Are we those committed to standing where Paul stood? Are we those committed to using power to do good, to bear witness to Jesus? Or are we Rome with all its pomp and circumstance, using our might to crush others? And if you think this isn't an issue that affects those who profess faith in God, just go back and read the story of God's people when they are given power. The temptation toward Rome's exercise of might is one God's people wrestled with as well, and one that we still wrestle with. Bearing witness to Jesus, brothers and sisters, means being willing and ready to stand where Paul stood, in chains, using God's power, using God's power, the power of our witness to tell people about the kingdom of God come in Jesus Christ our Lord. But that is exactly what Paul is about to do in the next chapter as he gives his defense before Agrippa and Bernice. For all of those around Paul, power is bent toward crushing. For Paul, it is bent toward witnessing. For Paul, it is bent toward witnessing. And I only have this question, what will it be for me and you? What will it be for us? If we're honest, we want the pomp and circumstance. We want the might of the world's power. We don't want the power that is often exercised in chains, the power that comes from following Jesus' example. The power of a Jesus-shaped life is not as appealing as the pomp and circumstance of the world's power. Yet true power is found exactly in the place that Paul stands, the place that his Lord and our Lord stood. It is found in giving ourselves over to God, in giving our lives to testify about him in this world, even if it means chains. The call here is to resist being deceived by the world's display of power, is to resist the heavy-handed display of the world's power. Agrippa's pomp, his public display of splendor and might, is going to give way in the end to the splendor and might of Almighty God. In fact, the Scriptures are clear that the splendor and might of the nations of this world will one day be subdued by the power of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Revelation 11 is a proclamation of that already and not yet truth of God's rule. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Already, already God 
through his Christ has begun to rule over the kingdoms of this world, having raised our Lord from the dead, and the day is coming where that rule will be established once and for all. This is why we can resist the world's way of power. We know who really reigns over the earth. We know who really rules over this world. And rather than follow the world in its pomp, we are called to power, to the power of witnessing for Jesus, testifying to our family, our friends, our neighbors, and even the rulers of this world of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if it means that they got to throw me in jail, even if it means that they have to take my possessions, even if it means that they have to call me names, I will testify of the goodness of the Lord Jesus because that is the way to true power. It is not the exercise of the might of this world. It is the exercise of Jesus's example of service and suffering for this very broken world. Agrippa's power is appealing, but it's fleeting. Agrippa's power is appealing, but it doesn't last long. Agrippa's power looks good on the outside, but on the inside, it is crumbling because Jesus has already rose from the dead. He is already seated at the right hand of God, and all the Agrippas of this world will one day have to bow the knee to Jesus. And so as Paul stood there in chains before Agrippa, looking at all of his pomp and circumstance, trust me, the Apostle Paul was not impressed. He was not impressed because he's seen something greater than that. He was not impressed because he knows the one who is more powerful than that. He was not impressed because he knows who God is. He was not impressed because he knows who Jesus is. He was not impressed because he knows who the Spirit is. He knows that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit rules and reigns over this world. He was not impressed, and you should not be impressed either. We got to resist. We got to resist that temptation to put our trust and our hope in the might and power of this world and instead put our hope and trust in the power and might of our God so that we can say (laughs) with the Apostle Paul, even if I die, (laughs) I die for Christ. (laughs) Amen, people of God. The forces of this world, as we bear testimony about Jesus, they will converge against us. But here's what we're called to do. We're called to put our trust in the Lord. And in putting our trust in the Lord, we are enabled to speak truth, even to power, and we are enabled to resist the world's power and instead grab a hold of the power of God that is in the face of Jesus Christ our Lord and King. May God give us the strength by His Spirit to trust in Him in this way for His glory and for His honor. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we need You. We need You to enable us, empower us to trust You in this way. We need You to enable us, to empower us to trust You such that we are enabled to stand even before the powerful of the world and bear witness to the truth about Jesus Christ. Father, help us, enable us by the power of your Spirit to stand faithfully in that long line of witnesses 
who were committed to telling the truth, who were committed to standing for God, who were committed to standing for you and for your kingdom, even in the face of the kingdom and power of the kingdoms of this world. Father, I pray that you would enable us to stand in that long line of witnesses who resisted the world's display of power and instead grabbed a hold of the power that is in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the power that is often exercised in chains as we bear witness about you in this world. I pray for your people. I pray for us here at New City. I pray for your people all over this city, this nation, this world. Enable us, Lord, to trust that the display of power that you show us in Jesus Christ is really the way to salvation and not the way of the world's might and power. I pray, help us to resist the temptation to be like the world, but to be like you. I pray and ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.